according to the ethnicity chart, I guess I'm Caucasian. I just have one question. Where the fuck is Caucasia? Good morning, everybody. Your boy's out here in Roseville now with his lady. I guess I'm like Chinese food. You just start craving me after another 10 days or so. But then, once you have it, it's like, eh, did I really have it? (laughs) So I'm down and out in Roseville. Down and out in Roseville. Makes me think of this movie that I saw back in the 80s. Down and out in Beverly Hills. Really good, really good flick. Uh, Matter of fact, I'm going early on my whacked out movie pick. Uh, Down and out in Beverly Hills. Uh, Nick Nolte, Richard Dreyfuss, Bette Midler, about a uh, grifter who kind of wanders through the back alleys of Beverly Hills and uh, decides he's going to kill himself. So he jumps in the pool of a uh, business tycoon, a local Beverly Hills business tycoon. And um, in so doing, he tries to drown himself in the pool. And uh, the family saves him. And then when they save his life, he kind of uh, transforms theirs in a sense. Um with tales of uh, his past as a screenwriter or, you know, traveling across India and all these crazy adventures. And, and basically, uh, this, this bum, this, Nick, this guy Nick Nolte um, pals around with Richard Dreyfuss, who's this uh, business entrepreneur who sells um, coat hangers. And uh, they form a relationship, and then Nolte kind of infiltrates the family uh, in a grifter mode, and then um, hilarity ensues. So, um, going early with the Down and Out in Beverly Hills. Um, hence the title Down and Out in Roseville. It's very, uh, it's very evocative of, say, Down and Out in Paris and London, the first full-length work by uh, English author George Orwell back in 1933. It's a memoir of his uh, existence as a uh, cook, believe it or not, of all things. The first part is an account. It's broken into two parts. The first part is an account of living in near extreme poverty, destitution in Paris, and the experience of casual labor in restaurant kitchens. The second part is a travelogue of life on the road in and around London from the tramp's perspective. So, there you go. So that's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm, um, I'm down and out in Roseville. But uh, I'm not. I'm just kind of. I'm. My new makeshift studio is in this back alleyway, over here in uh, Old Town Roseville, which was the, uh, which was Roseville back in the day, uh, back when I was in high school. And. Over here near Vernon and Douglas. Um, it's actually quite... It's the most sterile... Or or dare I say sterile... Back alleyway. Uh, see, my lady... 
she's she got this cool little funky bohemian apartment and it kind of um, is nestled into this um, little stretch along Old Town which again like all these places I guess I guess that's kind of a uh, I guess that's kind of a sign that if every local town has that refers to its old town every town that has an old town that they refer to it as an old town if that if that was the town when you were in high school you're fucking old you know old Folsom well yeah I guess old Folsom was kind of Folsom in a sense back in the day old well, old town Roseville was Roseville when I was 18 uh, old Old Town Elk Grove, Elk Grove Boulevard. You know, all the real quaint, charming stretches with character. You know, now they're all Old Town. It's all Old Town. All the places with real flavor are now Old Town. You know, and then the rest, the, 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 the cancer that spread out from amongst the rest of the town is what we have now, the retail, the concrete jungles, the outlets, the fucking just mindless concrete jungles of, you know, Best Buy and fucking, you know, this place and that place, Target and Walmart and all these big box, bland, you know, homogenized, everything looks the same, everybody must think the same, you know, ugh. Jesus, well, that's what that's what Roseville is now. That's what Folsom is now. That's what Elk Grove is. There's not even a bookstore in Elk Grove. There's not even a bookstore. Like what? There's 172,000 people, and there's no bookstore in Elk Grove. I mean, there's the small ones, you know. There's a small, like, uh, kind of the weird. It's not, it's kind of a used bookstore in Elk Grove, but it's also got like a, a big Christian section. So it kind of makes you wonder, like. Kind of like, it's got a weird vibe, you know. There's like a dude who's like real quiet sitting in one corner of the store, and you don't really want to make contact. And anyway, but uh, yeah, if your town doesn't have a bookstore, man, are you are you really a town? I don't know. Well, getting on, moving on, moving on. So this deal, this book that I've been, I was talking about a couple podcasts ago. Uh, this book, uh, it's called Hungry. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm trying to drink and hike <clears throat> and broadcast at the same time. Oh, well, kicking it in this back alleyway here. <clears throat> but, <clears throat> but this book, uh, Hungry, by Jeff Gordon Yeh. Gordon Year. I think it's Gordon Year. Eating, road tripping, and risking it all with the greatest chef in the world. I've been just... Man, once I hit my stride on this book, boy, it, it, it was very transformative. I will tell you that. And the reason being more so, more so in regard to the way it's written, the author himself, I ended up finding a, an interview with him on a couple different uh, podcasts. Um, one was the David Chang podcast, which, oh, ooh, it was in me, now it's on me, the, uh, 
David Chang, David Chang's a really uh, notorious Korean chef, and uh, he's kind of in that circle, I guess. He knows this guy, Red Zeppi, which is what the book is kind of about. And uh, the other the other podcast, which was a, mm, maybe a little more in-depth, but maybe a little more uh, comprehensive an interview, was on this Rich Roll podcast. I guess this guy, Rich Roll, he's a big podcaster. And um, so it, and that one became a lot about the outer lying portions of the art itself of cooking and traveling and how a lot of stuff overlaps in the realm of music and art and um, movies and... Uh, cooking and food and how it all kind of intertwines so there's some good takeaways from from both but in regard to um, what I came away with <clears throat> personally um, I just was blown away by just this guy Red Zeppi well I, I have an equal amount of uh, reverence for both the writer and Redzepi. Redzepi, well, without kind of belaboring this guy, I mean, he's just, he's a, he's, it's fascinating. The book itself is basically, he, uh, tell, he w wants the writer to meet him in Mexico to find the perfect taco. And when they get there, um, it's just, fascinating to go in depth with the locals that have these little restaurants and um, the process by which that they do things like for example in this one place called Cafe Oaxaca um, they meet this guy or they they liaison with this guy Alejandro Ruiz who owns Cafe Oaxaca among other restaurants out there and um, you know they dine on the rooftop and they get special kind of like uh, chef writer you know privileges to kind of go not behind the curtain but you know it's not we're not pulling the curtain back on Oz here we're just He's doing research to find the perfect... This guy, this Danish chef who's kind of regarded as the greatest chef in the world at this... Well, this was uh, this was a couple a few years ago by now, 2018. Well, no, I take that back. This is back in like 2014-15. The book was written in 18 or 19. And then he uh, a lot of the interviews were in the last couple of years but this guy Ruiz Alejandro Ruiz they're having this mole and the mole that he made you know there's so many variations I mean I'm not even going to do it justice by talking about it but the mole is so mind-blowing because just the mole okay so there's so much work there's so much ethos and uh, methodology into this Yet the way that the, the Mexicans do it is so, like, uh, I don't know, there's a style to it, you know? It's not an intense 
it's not working in a kitchen, so to speak, like you would picture now, which is so like you see on every Food Network show, everybody wants to be like this, you know, celebrity chef that's yelling at everyone and, you know, this being this, uh, like this Marco Pierre White, who was, you know, this, well, he's still, he's still, uh, he's a retired chef, an English chef. He's the only chef that I've ever read that made Gordon Ramsay cry, made Gordon Ramsay huddle into a corner in a fetal position and cry like a baby. And uh, one of the first, what they call the enfant terrible, you know, the terrible infants of English cuisine that would literally like throw patrons out, you know, if they, if they had some kind of, you know, if they, uh, you know, quibbled about something or just had an off color comment about something, he'd simply just toss them out. Like that's brilliant. I mean, I love that shit. That's, that's art. That's performance. That's, you know, that's, you can't buy that kind of entertainment. And, uh, you know, another instance of this guy, Marco Pierre White, he, uh, some patron asked if he could have like chips on the side, you know, French fries. And he made uh, he handmade some that weren't on the menu. And then he charged him like 57 pounds for it. <laughs> he or, no, it was 27 pounds just for the extra, you know, cause he could, cause fuck you. That's why. But, um, this guy Alejandro Ruiz, you know, the way the Mexican, you know, Mexicans, they have this, I mean, when they, when you've been doing something as long as they have in a, in a culture that's so layered upon layer, layered, layered upon layers, like getting back to this mole, you know, he makes the mole that they were eating was like 37 days old or something. And it's, but it's not, it wasn't, it started as a single recipe on the first day. And the mole that didn't get eaten the first day was then introduced to the second day mole, which was a different kind of variation, slight variation. You know, instead of using, say, pine nuts, he uses hazel, hazelnuts, or a, instead of a chocolate, he uses a, you know, some other, you know, spice or an herb. Or, but then the third day, it's compounded. Now you've got two different moles going into a third version. And then, you know, you know, rinse, repeat as directed and for 37 days. Now, 37 days, you've got 36 different variations of a mole. Can you just imagine the flavors that were going on there with each? I mean, even if it's the same spices back to back each Day, which it probably wasn't there might have been a variation maybe the difference in the amount of spice or you know what I mean but uh, but it but so so I, I found myself kind of I found myself kind of a, a, enamored by the writer as well as the subject itself this guy Gordon Ear, Gordon Yeh I don't know I hope one version I'm, I'm saying is correct but he um he was, he's a guy kind of like, um, he reminded me kind of like, not myself, although I have similarities, but, um, in the sense that he was from San Marino and he went to a, a, a very, uh, swim oriented programmed high school, meaning they've got a huge program with these great, uh, Olympic caliber swimmers that were coming out of there that would go on to swim at Stanford and stuff like that. And he was a swimmer as well. Uh, he ended up going to Princeton 
and swam at Princeton, but then I think quit after a, a season or early on because it was just like, you know, you just get burnt out. This guy had been doing it since he was, you know, at a, since a young age. But it, it reminded me of like David Foster Wallace, the, the late author who uh, killed himself back in 2008, but was at the time uh, was the creative writing professor at uh, Cal Poly Pomona and uh, had his own background as a tennis champion or a junior champion in tennis or, you know, at that competitive level. And then through a series of what maybe would be burnout or just the mere sobering, uh, the mere sobering um, realization that to get to that next level, it just takes, you know, an eighth day of the week to practice where you have to, you have to kind of transform your life and... So Wallace didn't do it, nor did this guy Gordon Near. And and I, you know, I'm kind of you know I went my first year up, up at Humboldt State running track, and then, I mean cross country, then track, with a fair amount of success, and then just decided, man, it's just like. There at this point has to be a reckoning, where you have to be transformative. And not everybody. Mm, as statistics will bear, as history will bear out, not everybody's, not everybody's quite wired for that. Those that do take that leap, like my buddy Dave Welsh, the state champion in the 3200, he was all in, and he was the state champion in California, but ultimately he ended up becoming, you know, a really, 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 really good national class runner, but nothing Olympic caliber, which is really, you know, that's what you're usually striving for in that, in that realm of athletics, of running, or, you know, in tennis, it would be obviously like one of the, you know, one of the big ones, you know, you're, you're, you want to play at Wimbledon or you want to play the U.S. Open, the French Open. With swimming, it would be, again, you know, Olympic aspirations. If, you, if you've, you know, athletes typically aren't as, you know, you have to have a certain amount of delusion, but you have to also be a realist in knowing what your capabilities, uh, what lies within your capabilities. My buddy Welsh, he, he was a really good mid-28 10,000-meter runner. And I think he was an All-American in the 5,000. He probably ran 13-something in the 5. But again, you know, he needed to be, pro- at this point in his life, well, of course, we're all in our 50s now. He's, you know, you have to be a, a you have to be 30 seconds faster, you know, on a 12-and-a-half-lap race. That's a big leap. And, you know, you, you go all in and then you don't make it and then you don't make it. It just is what it is. But at the cusp of that decision, you it, that's when you kind of find yourself, when you decide like, okay, this is where I'm pulling the ripcord on this and I'm going, and I'm going to, uh, I'm going to do something else. I'm going to do something else in my life. And that's what this guy who wrote the book, Gordon Ear, uh, ultimately did. He just, uh, you know, he took writing classes and then he graduated from Princeton and then he, you know, he's a really, uh, 
out of the book it's the book is really like i just like looking at the book too it's such a well made book it's like the artwork's really good the subject matter is brilliant reading it is like it's a lively it's not a dense it's not like this russian you know dostoevsky type you know dreary 1200 piece tome it's not uh you know some dark tolstoyish you know thing that you got kind of sludged and trudged through and uh it's a it's a it's better than reading some bullshit by like Rachel Ray you know it's miles ahead of that but several steps down from some kind of you know uh Nathaniel Hawthorne classic you know scarlet letter type assigned reading you know mind-numbingly boring English lit assigned reading bullshit I really like it but anyway he talks so so he talks pretty uh entertainingly as well like he evidently came from also a music background so he he must have been in and around the music scene because he was very influenced by that so he refers to uh he puts Redzepi, the chef in the same tone and uh candor as say like david bowie he considers him like the david bowie of cooking or like you know the steve jobs of cooking he puts people in those tones and he comes from a uh a knowledgeable background because he knows the music and he knows the <clears throat> this, is a, this is a very well-read guy he's also a, you know a fan of poetry and stuff so i'm not gonna i mean i can't knock him for that but whatever but I, uh, yeah, I was really impressed by the layout of this book. I can highly recommend it's, um, it's not just for food. I'm, cause I don't consider myself a foodie either. This blends a little bit of like adventure and self-awareness because this, you know, there's portions in the book where, you know, but Zeppi's like this, he's like this possessed kind of genius in this kind of, he's got a cult leader type vibe going on. And uh, he doesn't take no for an answer. And, uh, but he is, I'll tell you what he is. He's this guy that, um, like a couple of podcasts ago when I was talking about him, I didn't do him ju- enough justice when he basically, he's a child of immigrants, okay? And he's from the uh, Macedonian Albania, okay? So he's, it's a Muslim thing. And he's not, he doesn't, there really are no religious overtones in that aspect. This is something that obviously his, his father was, <clears throat> had a hand in because his mother was Danish. And, uh, but I think that there's an instillment of, of, of some kind of, interdisciplinary influence taken from being just, uh, having that Macedonian Albanian side to him. So, um, he was very uh, marginalized as, uh, a lot of immigrants are in other countries that have an anti-immigrant population. You know, the Danish are no different. It's the happiest, Copenhagen's supposedly the happiest city on the planet but there are there is that there is that anti-immigration you know when you see people coming from other countries it's a brexit thing it's like you know we don't want you here 
it's blah, blah, blah. So there's a chip on his shoulder. So he grew up kind of with this chip on his shoulder. And when you have a chip on your shoulder and you have the right wiring, you can do a lot of damage. Look at a guy like Tom Brady, okay? My boy, my boy TB12. Um, you know, when you're picked 399th in the draft and then you end up winning seven Super Bowls and played in 10 in the course of 22 seasons, that's a guy that plays with a chip on his shoulder. So you, so converted, convert that energy into a chef, the life of a chef who's been marginalized by the, you know, the local anti-immigrant community in Copenhagen. And you're going to have a guy that breaks all the rules to achieve us in, in a single-minded focus, a way that just is astonishing. And, and in so doing, he's created this restaurant. It, it, Mm. It says a lot about this guy, um, about his mindset, but how it was shaped too, with this chip on his shoulder. Um, so, yeah, you know, we take for granted these guys that are hustling these jobs that have st you know stumbled. They stumble into learning other languages too, learning English, you know, like when I was, when I, whether, okay, so whether they're Mexican or Cambodian or Macedonian or Danish or Laotian, you know, they, they had to work twice as hard as to accomplish what the locals that grew up in the same area did. It's something to take a step back and try to learn, well, first of all, learn the second language while you're trying to provide a life for your family in a marginalized setting. So the, in my opinion, the immigrants have always, I've always felt like they've done the American dream better and more fervently than the Americans. And if they complain at all about it, you don't hear it. You know, um, so that was one takeaway um, I can take, it makes me think, it takes me back to like when I was doing cabinets, like, cause again, I re, I, I re, I've reinvented myself a few different times, you know, I did growing up and going through high school, you know, I was framing houses and then for about 10 years I did cabinet work. And then for 10 years, I sold cars. But when I was doing cabinets, one of the more prominent guys I would work with was this guy. His name was Jerry Haro. Gerardo Haro. Gerardo. Uh, and he, oddly enough, he actually wanted to be a chef too. Um, but he was growing He was first generation Mexican. And they couldn't, his dad was, his dad was kind of like a, a, a modern version of a sharecropper. Uh, he worked on a farm. Didn't own the farm, but he lived and worked on the farm. So he raised his son on the farm in a farm ethic, you know. And But being in a first-generation Mexican family, they couldn't afford culinary school, so he became a cabinet guy. And uh, so when I was doing cabinet work, I worked for this big company out of Tracy, California, called Barbosa. Barbosa Cabinets, Portuguese guys. A couple of guys that were, started a business out of the garage and then... After, you know, by the time I was working for them, they owned uh, a 50,000 square foot building. So 
uh, it looked and it looked like a small like Ford assembly plant. I mean, they they um, timing helps too, but I mean, hardworking guys. Uh, their staff was a bunch of assholes, but you got to give them credit. But I worked for them back in the mid two thousands, and uh, so as I did cabinets for about a decade, the guys that I worked with and around. See, this was. Uh, in this capacity, I, I did more like uh, I was. Tr- I, I did kind of. I put myself through kind of an in, an internship in learning how to install kitchen cabinets and install, you know, install cabinets and uh, not make them. So I was never really trained uh, in the shop, but these guys, you know, these guys that I work with. They can't. They all came from shops, so like Jerry Haro, uh, my buddy Paul. He was Cambodian. Um, basically, these guys I work with, we did more warranty work than anything because the shop did the work, and then they delivered the kitchens to the residential homes, and then the contractors would install the kitchens. But we would do the service work. <clears throat> we would replace doors, uh, do t- do touch-ups after the installation. So I worked in the mid two thousand. You know, this was like two thousand four, two thousand five. This is right before the the housing crash, and uh, this was like peak. This is peak. This is where people were basically using their houses as ATMs. So you'd set these appointments to go do some warranty work to go replace a door or a drawer or rebuild something that got damaged or touch something up or re-stain something or re-laminate something. When you knock on the door, you know, in 2005, the homeowner would open the door and the first thing they would ask you is, do you do side work? Well, yes, I do. Whether I did or I, or I didn't, I did. And so they would drag you in and, you know, you'd replace a door. You'd do whatever you had to do. But then they'd say, I want to, you know, I want an entertainment center here. This was a subdivision. One of many subdivisions. They all had these prefabricated layouts for their uh, entertainment centers, hutches, bureaus, you know, bookcases. But nothing was in them. Those were options that they declined on the... Oops, sorry about that, folks. As I was walking through the back alleys here, George Orwell style, I walked, I backed myself into a gang initiation and they made me their leader. So I had to pause for a sec. Just kidding. Actually, I got a phone call, but... um, What I was saying was, though, that... uh, So I got all these jobs. I got all these side jobs. I was offered all these side jobs, but I I didn't know how to build cabinets, Okay. And so what I did was I went to these guys like Jerry Haro and my buddy Paul and uh, who knew how to stain and build cabinets. Matter of fact, I had a few guys like this. I had a few shops like this that I knew. These guys, um, they all had these kind of uh, makeshift little cabinet shops with dirt floors, like in the middle of the Central Valley, like in the middle of Livingston, in the middle of a farm, in the middle of Tracy, literally, dirt floor, fucking, <coughs> oh my god, Jesus, I'm so sorry, that boy is a P.I.G. pig, 
But, um, so they would work all day with me. And then after work, they would go to their shops. They were, they would work, they had these shops that would, they'd work out of a barn with a dirt floor that they had some cabinet making equipment in. And, uh, table, you know, a nice table saw, nice chop saw, big old industrial air compressor, spray rigged gear, you know, totally illegal, you know, you know, totally illegal spray rigs, you know, with all these EPA fucking, (laughs) you know, if, 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 if the EPA walked in on these guys, they would fucking arrest every one of them. But so after work, you'd go to these guys shop and you'd tell them, Hey, I got this job. I got a bookcase or I've got an entertainment center that somebody wants. And I'd give them, I'd, I would, I would lay it out. I would make the blueprints and then I would take it to them. How much would it cost to build this? They'd give me a price. And then I would call the customer and I'd say it's X amount. I'd tack on a little for myself for the installation. And then I would work all night kind of watching these guys build their, build the entertainment centers or build the sometimes it was a whole kitchen they'd build a whole kitchen out of these dirt floor cabinet shops these these kind of ramshackle cabinet shops it was fascinating but it was this it was all immigrant labor these guys were straight up immigrants i mean they literally you know washed off from the river and walked into this dirt floor cabinet shop and started fucking hustling i mean it was fascinating so but they would also be, you know, drinking beer all night. Like we've, I've, I, my God, you know, some of these guys, you would be, <laughs> they'd be spraying and drinking at the same time, you know, they'd be blasting, you know, all these awful fluorocarbons of, of uh, lacquer into the air, into the barn, dirt going everywhere, cake. And sometimes we had, sometimes we had cabinets that were very nicely textured with dirt. But, it, but these guys were, they knew what they were doing. They were hustlers, but they were homegrown. You know, they were, they were just straight up just figuring it out on the fly. And the final product was really, really good. I mean, these guys, it wasn't a scam. It was, this was like, they knew how to, you know, they knew what they were trying to achieve. And they, and they did it with kind of this, again, it was like a, I could chip on their shoulder, you know? Like, you can't, you can't tell me I can't do this because I'm going to do this. And I love that shit. I love that kind of shit. I was fascinated by it. So they would build the ship, and then I would schedule the installation, and then we would all pack it up and take it out there. And then we would, you know, on weekends, uh, or sometimes after work, you know, you'd be in somebody's house till about 1 a.m. sometimes putting in kitchen cabinets or refacing a kitchen or adding a bookshelf, adding this entertainment center. And, uh, you know, these guys were hustlers, man. And I was, I was in awe. I was, you know, it was the same kind of energy like this guy Red Zeppi would use to go look for the perfect taco in Mexico. It was that same kind of pointed focus that, or this drive, you know, that Tom, that, you know, that a guy like Tom Brady would have, you know, only it was, it was, it was, you know, you translate it into this kind of more bucolic type version, this more uh, blue collar version, so to speak. It's a blue collar version of Tom Brady. It's these immigrant immigrants, you know, in these 
dirt floor barns all over the center. I mean, there's, you know, back in the mid-2000s, you know, they, they were right under your nose and you didn't even know it. Fascinating stuff. So just the in-depth type of stuff like that is fascinating, you know. Um, I made a lot of <clears throat> good friends doing this, you know. I mean, when you're, you know, when you're in some stranger's house until 1 a.m. trying to convince them that uh, that is how the, you know, the crown molding is supposed to go when, <laughs> when it may or may not have been that way, but you're, you're, hus- you're, 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 you're selling them on this idea. You know, you, you create a bond with these guys, and uh, I, still th- I, still, I still talk to these guys today. I still message these guys. They're still friends of mine. Uh, and there's still, you know, it's that same, you know, that mindset doesn't go away. Whatever they're doing now, they're doing with that same kind of energy. And uh, it says a lot about, you know, people that <clears throat> feel like they're marginalized. If, if you could flip the script on that and you can kind of lean into it, you know, it's like being in the back seat of, of a car, you know, with somebody on each side of you and they decide they're going to squish you. All you got to do is lean one way or the other and you're going to squish somebody else. You're leaning into that. You're leaning into that energy and you're, you're redistributing it, redistributing it and, and, uh, and using it, you know, to your advantage instead of an impediment. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, you got, you got to hand it to these. Uh, so I felt, you know, but, uh, yeah, I felt a little kinship with this guy, Gordon, here. Because it, it made me think of the mid-2000s when I used to do cabinet work. And the guys that I worked with, a bunch of these Mexican woodworkers and Cambodians and Laotians. You know, this crazy work ethic that infiltrated all these dirt floor workshops that they had in Livingston and Tracy. And, man... It was good times, it was fun times. Um, but yeah, that's what uh, I kind of, I had this attachment. Uh, but yeah, that's it. That's uh, whatever, whatever. So whatever these guys were, you know, like I was saying, to the point with this guy, say, Redzepi, who's, you know, the, the theme of the book was this reinvention, okay? Or, you know, to do away with, do away with the status quo. Okay, so you've been voted the best restaurant three years in a row. The fourth year in a row, you dropped out of the top 50 and from what I gather from what I read from what I've seen what I heard that fourth year he basically took his whole crew out just outside the restaurant lined them up and then walked up to each of them and just screamed fuck you and to each of their faces one at a time (laughs) like with just the single minded mindset of you know a marginalized immigrant that demands perf- perfection, but 
you actually, instead of feeling abused, felt like you've probably let him down because you, you get it. It's like Tom Brady yelling at his front line, his O-line, you know? Like, you're going to take some abuse, but you respect the guy. You totally, and you get it because something happened. Somebody dropped the ball somewhere. And uh, so that's, and then the fifth year, they're number one again. But what he, but in so doing, he tore it all down. You know, again, you know, I, I talked about this whole thing many um, podcasts ago about, uh, well, in relation to somebody like Norm MacDonald, rest in peace, who just passed away this last week. Uh, you go through a situation like he did where he was a gambling addict and drained his bank account three times in a row. And we're talking like six figures. You can rebuild it because you have the tools and you have the, the wiring and you have the mindset. Well, just like this guy, Redzepi, he did the same thing. He tore it all down after winning the best... Re- I mean, you're at the peak now. You're at the peak of your game. And you're, you're... It's not about comfort, and it's not about riding the coattails of success. It's about what's next. It's like that David Bowie thing where you're just going to... You're going to reinvent yourself. You're going to go, okay, I'm not David Bowie anymore. I'm not... You know, I'm not going to be this guy that sings space oddity i'm going to reinvent myself and i'm gonna i'm gonna do something that looks ridiculous and i'm gonna study kabuki theater and then i'm going to create this fictional character named ziggy stardust and i'm gonna go on tour with it like what the fuck (laughs) why does he why does he look like an alien why does he you know um why does he do anything? You know, in, in, but you're in awe of it. You're just because he, he tore it down and then he built it back up. And I guess the underlying theme of the whole conversation here is that if your convictions are strong enough that you can, and your work ethic is strong enough, no matter what happens to you, you can start from scratch. You can start over, you know? If you're Norm MacDonald and you just blew everything in a casino, you can start over again and you can build it back up, which he did. If you're David Bowie and you, you know, receive all this praise for this song, Space Oddity, but you can't play that, you're just tired of playing that song and you want to do something else, start, you know, don't play Space Oddity for the rest of your life, you know? I remember listening to Bill Murray talk about, um, he was on a Bob Costa show. He was, uh, in the early days before he was even on Saturday Night Live, they, <clears throat> he did another variety show with Howard Cosell called Saturday Night with Howard Cosell, which sounds pretty grim, but, uh, he talked about the fact that, uh, the musical act <laughs> was this group from Scotland called the Bay City Rollers, and they had that song, S-A-T-U-R-D-A-Y, night, S-A-T-U-R-D-A-Y, night. Saturday night, Saturday night. Biggest hit they ever had, only hit they ever had. And they performed twice on this show, Saturday night with Howard Cosell. And you know what song they performed? 
that song. You know what song they performed the second round on that show? That same song. You can't ride the same song. Like, where are they now? You can't ride that. You can't. You can't run one thing in the ground like that. If you're able, if you're able to reinvent yourself, then uh, you can do anything you want. So, <clears throat> anyway, I got off the subject here. I got off. I got off subject, and uh, I should wrap it up here pretty soon. But I was totally impressed by all this, though. I mean. Um, again, the common thread between all this is pretty, pretty obvious stuff. Um, wherever you are, wherever you land, wherever you endeavor, um, you can, um, reinvent yourself. It's like that movie I was talking about down and out in Beverly Hills um Nick Nolte is just this guy that he's he's kind of a put together you know but he basically just invented he invented this he invented this situation that worked for him and and in the end in the end they exposed him as the well he kind of told him it was all put together and uh and he moved on. And so there's something kind of zen. There's a little something zen about that, too. But, uh... I don't know. I don't know. I don't really know where I'm going with this, but... But that's the podcast. I'm out here in Roseville. Looking at the cleanest alley that you've ever seen. It's Wednesday. No, what day is this? Thursday morning? I don't know. And uh, about to start my day, about to reinvent myself one more time. If that's what it takes, if it, even if it's day to day, even if it's day to day, one day at a time, if you have to reinvent yourself every day, then you can do it. You can do it. You know, sometimes it's just a matter of like when I was in the car business, you know, sometimes, boy, if you weren't in a groove, you would literally have to reset yourself. I mean, within the day. Sometimes I'd have to reset myself three times a day. You know? You run into that, that one, that first asshole, you know, who asked you for their card. Hey, you got a card? No, that's the, that's the old, uh, that's the subliminal, that's the uh, international language for I'm not buying and I'm not buying from you. This is how I'm going to get out of this. Give me your card. And, you know, I, shit, I, went, I told a guy one time, I'm not going to give you my card. He goes, you got a card? I go, no, I'm not going to give you my card. He's like, what? Because <laughs> you're not going to call me. <laughs> you're not going to, you know, I know you want to leave. So I'm not going to give you my card. You just, just go away, you know. <laughs> like, you just know. But after that, I had to reset. But then I reset, and then you build it back up again. You build it back up again. So, so that's a podcast for today. On this, our, our day of the Lord, September 23rd, Thursday morning.
God, this is the cleanest alley. I swear this is the cleanest alley. Matter of fact, the other last month I was out here <clears throat> and uh, you could see the back alley from my lady's window and there was a guy kind of a homeless guy just kind of perched out back he kind of like was just chilling out back and I thought to myself you know if I was homeless that would be the that would probably be one of the most easiest and sterile places to 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 just obscure yourself and just get out of the fold I mean the only traffic I've seen in the whole time I've been out here is the garbage truck and even he didn't stop but anyway hope you guys enjoyed it I kind of uh, I kind of meandered a bit here and there but um, I highly recommend uh, highly recommend this book it's just a, it's a good if you like music and you like food and you like good, good, very good journeyman writing on a really rich subject, the book Hungry, Jeff Gordonier. And then uh, after you buy that at your local bookstore, which they don't have in Elk Grove, then go rent the movie Down and Out in Beverly Hills. This is what this, yeah, this is what this alleyway reminds me of. It's like a Beverly Hills alleyway. I love it. I might just spend the night out here tonight. I don't know. Anyway, I'll talk at you all later. Arrivederci, babies.